0: All right, good morning, and uh, let's get started. It's nice to see that not everybody is out skiing, despite the... So, let's get started. Uh, The topic for today is software project management. Uh, And we are going to look at, first of all, a definition of a software project. We're going to talk a bit about how software projects differ from projects in other areas. Uh, We're going to talk briefly about project planning, effort estimation and scheduling, understanding how much work is involved in a software project, about risk management, and about monitoring and control, how to follow up what happens in a software project and how to uh, know when to react to the situation in a software project. But first of all, just to get you awake, uh, help me define what is meant by a project what is a project and you can again try to find a friend who is smarter than you or almost as smart and figure out what is what are
1: characteristics of a project how could we define project All right, any ideas? Could you please help me give characteristics? What makes something a project?
0: You can always raise your friend's hand if you don't want to talk yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, please. <laughs> okay, so we have a goal. We
1: have a set of resources. Okay, something that we and what else? Yeah, we, have, we typically have a schedule. Um, uh, can you think of anything else? We have, yeah. It's typically unique in one way or another.
0: And that's what separates it from a process. But I think we have, we have a clear beginning. We know when a project starts. A project has a clear end as well, and that gives us a schedule. Then we have specific objectives and goals, as you said, something that we intend to accomplish, Uh, and we have a set of resources that can be people, most typically and most importantly in software projects are people, but they can also be other things like machines, computers and so on that we need to perform a project. So this, this differs from an ongoing uh, process. This is very, should be intuitively clear to most of you, but it's very important to understand that this is how projects are defined. And if you think about this from a software development point of view, uh, one problem we might have,
1: or well, let, let me throw that to you, if you look at police chair, where do you think we might start running into problems, more or less immediately? Yeah? Uh, we
0: But we can, we can define that. Yes, we would have to maintain a program. So if we say the whole, everything we do with a piece of software, uh, defining that as a project might be a bad idea because the project might never end. So we would typically define then uh, that, for example, when we ship a decent version, that, that would end one project and we would start a new project to make the next version. So that's a good point. Other problems we might run into
1: looking at this simple definition of a project. You see, we have specific objectives. Ring any bells? What are the, the specific objectives?
0: Yeah. Just the specific objectives, uh, we would transfer that into software engineering speak and talk about requirements. And you all know that requirements change. They can be difficult to find out and so on. To find it, to having very, very explicit objectives that are so clear that we can use them as a basis for planning the whole project in detail. Uh, it's not achievable. So taking this traditional point of view to software engineering you know, makes it a bit difficult. But that is why we have the different uh, life cycle models. We have iterative and incremental development as you all remember, the life cycle models and agile development. And that also means that our approach to project planning and monitoring
1: will be different depending on what kind of life cycle we're in software engineering. Uh, in software development, we, we can find lots of different
0: types of projects. We develop, develop one-of-a-kind, customer-specific systems totally new products, new versions of existing software, we might add new features, and we might uh, uh, be a part just of a larger systems uh, project in which we develop, for example, embedded software. And from a project management point of view and a management point of view, uh, these projects would differ in how much we know, in what are the external constraints for the project, and so on. Which uh, one the I think would be the easiest? Uh, if you look at the list, there's for us to plan and manage. And why? There are no, no absolutely correct answers, but there are some differences in how easy they might be to manage. That like you can, you should be able to reason.
1: Yeah.
0: Would be the issues to manage, right? You don't have so much constraints because nobody knows what you're developing. So you might not have, the markets might not know that. Your cli- you, have, you have no clients who make strict demands. So you have a lot of, of uh, freedoms. Yes, that's one way. So on the, on the other hand, in that sense, uh, those are easy to manage because even if we, don't, if we don't need schedules and so on, they tend to be internal. So it's only us, we, our company, we cover on the other hand, we could say that, uh, also, we could argue that totally new software products are from a project very difficult to manage. Could somebody help me that, just so we can have two sides in the state of the project? But why might developing a new software product, totally new software product, be difficult to manage? Yeah. There's actually one telling you what to do, I mean, I have to make the Yeah, we have to come up with the features, the ideas, for and from a project management point of view, we have no data absolutely whatsoever on how long doing something will take. So we have a very difficult uh, uh, way, uh, difficult to plan and manage the project because we have no data to rely on, previous data. Whereas from a project management point of view, adding new features or improvements to old systems would be easy. we have a long history of adding features, fixing bugs, with data that we can use to help us manage the project. So uh, there are, and products having embedded software, there we tend to have uh, lots of interactions with the hardware guys and lots of, of constraints due to that. So they can be, they typically are quite small projects or small sub-projects, but they can be difficult because the platform we are developing for it is changing. That's a typical problem in them. And we also have projects that are intra-organizationally distributed, meaning we have different sites uh, within our own organization. They might be also inter-organizationally, that is we can have subcontractors, projects spanning several organizations that we need to manage. We're going to have a lecture on global software development in the second part of the course, when we have people from different countries working on developing software together. We can have subcontractors, we can use ready-made components, and. We can also include or use open-source software, which we will also talk about uh, in the second part of the course. Uh, this will also uh, have uh, deep influences on how we manage the project. So the size of the project, the length, the resources, the way we manage these projects will differ
1: depending on the project types and the lifecycle model used. i many of you have taken the table project management course on the Industrial Management?
0: Okay. I will not try to cover basic project management that is taught uh, on that course. We're going to focus on software projects. And I do su- suggest that if you don't have a question of the differences today, should, are you required to take the course to graduate?
1: No. Oh, that's bad. You should, because most of you will, typically quite
0: early when you start your working life, if you start working uh, in technical roles, you will end up as a project manager sooner or later, as a project manager or team leader. Um, <laughs> so I do suggest that those of you uh, who haven't taken the course do take. Of course you get the general framework for project management because we won't be able to give you both that and talk about software projects in general so the first point here is many many of, of the techniques of general you know, so project management are applicable to software project management however due to the fact that we have different lifecycle models uh, and we have the problems with understanding the model in the software uh, we have uh, software projects are a project type that is typically very difficult to manage. And we talked earlier during the first lecture about the thread groups, the characteristics of software that makes software difficult to understand and manage the invisibility and flexibility of, flexibility of software. But let's say the basic problem is trying to understand, first of all, what we should build and then how long it will take, how much resources we will have, then scheduling that and managing the whole thing. Uh, it's all abstract, and that is why we need uh, the various sub-disciplines of software engineering to help us make it more concrete. So we have the problems of doing a perfect requirement specification in the beginning. If we don't have a perfect requirement specification, uh, how do we know what to build? And from a software project management point of view, our problem is uh, we should take a set of requirements. We should understand what the system should look like. We should be able to estimate how long it will take for the new process we will need. And then we should be able to schedule and manage that. That is difficult if we don't have a full set of requirements. As you remember, uh, partial solutions are provided by the life cycle model saying, well, let's first do a general vision. And then we can plan iterations. And then we would plan the details of separate iterations later doing something called rolling wave planning in software pro- in project management there is a big difference between developing software and for example building houses or working in a factory if we have if we when we build for example houses and so on we have a fairly good uh, understanding of the productivity of individuals we know how many nails of uh, can <laughs> Between in a day or, or, how ex- or how long it takes to, to construct these things. And, and we can use those numbers and they are fairly consistent among people. In software development, a good coder and a bad coder, an ex- excellent software engineer and an average or poor software engineer, the productivity, productivity difference is enormous. We have various numbers go, ranging from, let's say, 3 to up to 30. So if it takes 30 times longer if I to do it than doing it myself, uh, it makes a big difference from a project management point of view. So this is a big problem that we have, that the productivity difference between the best and the decent and the worst coders, making it difficult to work with uh, esti- with estimation based upon uh, general numbers. We talked about the mythical the problem that people that we bring on later. If we ha- are building a house, for example, if, if, if it looks that we're go- like we're going to uh, have problems with the schedule, we add double or triple the amount of people working on it, and we might be able to catch up the schedule. We talked about the fact that this is not doable in software engineering, due to the fact that the new people Uh, It takes a long time for them to get up to speed with what they are developing. And we also end up with lots of changes typically to the requirements and also technical technical, uh, uh, changes, making it uh, much about managing changes as much as about just
1: following uh, plan.
0: This is a study that is by no means perfect. It has been very much criticized, but it's a study that looked at software project success rates in 2000, and it uh, divided projects into three types: successful projects that that built what they were supposed, all features on time and to budget; then, challenged projects that were completed and operational; they provided. Uh, But we're over uh, over budget, over time, and with typically fewer features than we And then we have failed projects that were cancelled. And then we can see that about half of the projects studied were were challenged. So they didn't provide everything to to budget. About a fourth... A bit more was successful, and about a fourth was cancelled. So, there is clearly room for improvements here. But the, more important than these statistics were uh, the reasons for failure. And this is important for us to understand as software engineers. The main point here, that the main reasons for the problems in the project weren't technical. They weren't that things weren't technically doable, or that the code wasn't good enough. The same problems were related to project management and support from higher level management. And we can see the same thing we have in wireless technology that's globally distributed for quite a while. And the problems we run into, the reasons that projects fail, uh, are typically not technical. They are almost always related to people, managing the people, making things work in the project. Most typically, uh, the problem is we underestimate the complexity, we ignore the changing requirements. So, we are, as engineers, tend to be optimists. And then we make impossible schedules, impossible budgets, and then we set up to fail. But the problems and the solutions lie in the people and in the process we use to work. So, the recipes, the the lessons learned from, from this study were To make projects smaller, if you start to having a project that looks
1: like it's going to take 10 years, that's a bad project. So, smaller projects have shorter duration.
0: One way of doing this, if we have a very big thing, is, again, to use iterative models. So, we have shorter iterations that produce something tangible, make them more manageable. And then we have the idea uh, underlying most incremental and iterative models is the idea of drawing. We will first build uh, a skeleton, architectural skeleton, uh, upon which we draw the actual features. And shipping, showing uh, the results of the iterations earlier to users. So, also, some empirical
1: data support the use of incremental and iterative software processes. How long do you think is a good what, what's a good length for a project any ideas what's a good length is ten years a good length five years
0: yeah that's a very good, that's a very good range to tell us so much would you agree or do you have
1: Go on. Sorry. What we what we would see typically is in particular projects from the life cycle model often end up
0: being longer than 12 months. That is what we typically see. A very typical, not not perhaps very typical, but something that is quite typical is that you have a waterfall model. project plans to take one year, it takes between two and three. So the overruns might be extremely big. That's not unusual. I'm not joking. We can all think about this. Uh, uh, and this is due to all of the things we talked about here previously. So when we talk about project overruns and problems, they are not necessarily small problems. They can be very big problems. And you, all, we, you might have read in... in, in in the newspapers and so on, how projects act. Uh, for example, our government has put 200 million euros on, get cancelled, never produced anything useful. Project management-related problems related to dealing with the client, understanding the requirements, and so on, and so on.
1: So, when we talk about problems in software projects, they are, can be economically enormous. But a good length is typically uh, a very short project it could be a one-minute project,
0: but then you really might need to think about whether it's useful to deal with that as a project because you get overhead for planning, for monitoring, and so on. So a few months to, to a year, a very typical suggestion you hear is that nine months is a good length for a project, a good much length. Up to a year, I think is okay. So uh, very good, very good answer. And if you have a very deep project system, if you split it into iterations, uh, and then you plan the near future in more detail as you go along. And this is called rolling wave planning. Let's talk a bit about project planning. You will see a clear relationship to uh, requirements management. First of all, it's important to identify the project stakeholders, the people who are interested in the outcome of the project, the motivation and objectives, what they want, and try to reconcile them. The client wants all features costing as little as possible, and so on. And you do want as much money as possible as, uh, uh, as uh, developers and so on. And we, can have, we need to define how we communicate with the stakeholders, and then we,
1: uh, we identify both the internal stakeholders and the external stakeholders. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. Typical stakeholders would be
0: uh, the project team, project manager, product manager, users, clients, management at different levels, and so on. Then we should define the objectives. Now, it's a good idea. We have the problem of defining the detailed requirements. But very often we can have the actual requirement stage as the first part of a project. So, when we talk about defining the project objectives in the early stages of project planning, we talk about defining the scope of the project, the overall goal. So, we are going to develop a system that makes lecturers unnecessary. That will make both students and lecturers happy, or perhaps not. And then we could go into the requirements. What are the requirements for from the student's point of view, from the lecturer's point of view, from the university's point of view, and so on. And then it's important that you already, at the early stages as you remember from the class that we, everybody accepts and understands the overall go- the objectives and goals that help guide and motivate the participants and also understand what shouldn't be included in the project. If we have a very big project, we typically take the objectives also into sub-objectives that typically then end up being done as sub-projects by sub-groups. Uh, we must also have developer level uh, sub-objects related to attributes that are important to developers like the details to, of the software process we are using or uh, maintainability aspects and so on, working environments and so on. So objectives should be as concrete as possible. Uh, If you look at the two objectives here, we have uh, one objective to improve customer relations, and the other objective would be to reduce customer
1: complaints by 50%. Now, the question is, which one of these objectives would be better? Let's have a vote. Who votes for (coughs) to improve customer relations as the better objective? Okay. Who votes for reduce customer complaints by 50% okay good
0: you're right the second one is better uh, the first one is what you read in most project plans or in corporate st- strategies we want to increase customer satisfaction and we want to be among the top blah 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 uh, objectives that are too general that aren't specific and measurable are very bad Because it makes it unclear whether you have achieved them or not. It's very clear whether you can, after the project, whether you have reduced customer complaints by 50% or not. It's a much better objective. Uh, To improve customer relations is a good objective, but it needs to be specified. It's not workable yet. It's not operational. You need to to break it down into concrete things, what it really means. How do we know whether we have achieved that objective? So this is a general rule for writing objectives, and also when you write requirements. It's important that you write the requirements and your general objectives in projects and in project plans to make sure that they are
1: easily measurable, so you can say whether you have really done it or not. Projects always have constraints, typically they are resources that that we
0: have time, quality and functionality resources include people, money. Uh, and we need to understand them what we plan and address the objectives. These uh, the importance of these constraints vary by project type. In some projects, uh, it's more important to get something to the market by a certain date than having all the features. So of course the o- general idea is that we can fix everything. We can have time resources, quality and functionality features. Uh, often this is also shown as a triangle. where we would have time, resources and scope which, which typically would include both quality and and uh, and features. And, of course, when we start planning a project, we try to fix all corners, or all four corners there. But in practice, we end up making trade-offs. So then it's very important for us to know which one we should flex. And if we look at agile development using iterative, uh, Agile development fixes time because we have a fixed end date for the iterations and we fix the resources. So, we don't add people. We have a fixed set of people, we have a fixed schedule. The thing that varies when things happen is the scope. We will implement less features when it takes time. We'll drop features, we will still shift by the set end date. If we look at the waterfall model, how it typic- what we typically end up with, is a situation in which we have fixed the resources and we have fixed the scope because that's agreed upon according to our agreements between the uh, client uh, and us and then when we have problems they run late. So these are very important to understand the uh, relative importance in your project between these uh, constraints because That that importance will be used for you as a trade-off criteria when you run into problems, which you will do in all projects. There are no software projects that go exactly according to plan. If they do, uh, your plan is faulty and you have cheated. And what do I mean by that? Then you have probably added so much buffer time. that that you actually uh, have planned for more time than it would ever take. All right. In project planning, in traditional project management, uh, and in software projects, at least for a bit bigger software projects, you typically develop a project plan that is a specific document. And it should be an important document. It's a document that typically is formally agreed and accepted that you give to different stakeholders, and it documents the various planning assumptions and decisions you have made and agreed upon when you plan the project, it facilitates communication, and
1: it documents the approved scope, cost, and schedule, so you have the constraints documented in your project plan.
0: The important thing about project plans in a a good project is that the project plan isn't the right ones, then forget documents. It's a document that you update as you know more as things change. So you you also should have your project plan under version control. And then you you do the changes to the project
1: plan according to uh, specific uh, procedures. A typical
0: project organization, or so I like, For some reason I left out the slide. Both projects have something called a steering group, the The steering group uh, is the most uh, high-level deciding uh, organizational element in a project. Typically it consists of the client uh, our management And the project manager. The steering group typically is the uh, part of the project that is allowed to make changes to the constraints, to the cost, to the schedule,
1: uh, uh, and, and to the scope. Under the project steering group we have a project manager.
0: And the project managers role in a project is to achieve what has been uh, agreed upon in the steering group and documented in the project plan. He is also the person who, uh, who, who writes and updates the project plan. And then under the project manager we might have one or more project teams. I'll just have here two sub- sub-project teams. So this is the basic project organization. Then, in most real-world organizations, we have something called matrix organizations, but we won't talk about that now. But the basic idea in a a project is we have a project manager who manages the project according to the project plan that is approved by the steering group, who also approves the changes. The project manager then is responsible for organizing and managing the work that goes on in the project. In a big project, the so, project manager would have several teams with their own sub-managers and so on, and sub-goals. Uh, and then in matrix organizations, we, in addition, we would have a live management.
1: But let's keep that for this lecture. Typically, the project manager is responsible for writing the project plan. Uh, whenever possible, it's
0: a good idea to, if you have a good idea of the resources that will be included, You should use other experts uh, uh, for for input when when you plan the project and, if possible, include as many members as possible. The project plan then is accepted by the project board or steering group. The plan is delivered to all stakeholders and it's important to keep the project uh, up-to-date and having a version history for the project plan. Here is from a standard for software project planning.
1: Uh,
0: We have lots of standards in the field of software engineering. Here is a a list from a standard of the contents of a project plan. Now, you can view this list as as two percent. set. Most projects don't need everything that is in this list. So, again, uh, when you do any kind of documentation in software engineering, Uh, There's no value in itself in documenting everything. You should always think about what are the important things that I need to document in this project. And you should use the same logic uh, when using templates like this. So you can see here that you would in your project plan have project overview containing background, purpose, scope, objectives, assumptions and constraints, what you assume. Deliverables, what what are the practical things that you should deliver in your project what are the responsibilities of the customer versus the project team, a summary of the schedule and budget, how the plan will be uh, managed, what is the plan for for evolution of the plan, preferences and definitions you need. You would have the project organization showing what are are the actual project organization, what are the external uh, interfaces to, outside to the customers, to the users and so on, And what are the roles or responsibilities of the different parts? Then you would have uh, some way of showing how the project is partitioned into different parts, the process model, the milestones, uh, the project phases cycles, and the release release plan, showing when you release things.
1: Uh, Anyone know what a milestone is in a project? What is a milestone? You might see it in project charts, which I will see later as diamonds. What is a milestone? I had some people that taken pre- the question project management. I think you should know. Yeah, what's a milestone?
0: A milestone is typically tied to a deliverable. It is typically the completion of some important part of the project. Typically, the important thing about the milestone is that achieving a milestone means achieving a set of deliverables that have been defined for the milestone. We also typically have a target date, like the milestone for uh, finishing, uh, going through the content of project management on this course is today by 12. Uh, that milestone is achieved if I had delivered the lecture all content quite well uh, if I haven't then the milestone is not achieved so the milestone is not achieved according to the date specified for it it is achieved based upon producing the deliverables that have been defined for the milestone so this is important a milestone is achieved or not achieved it has a target date for example, the requirements should be understood by next Friday. That is the milestone. If you haven't understood the requirements by next Friday, just as time goes along, that milestone hasn't been passed, then you will need, uh, you have a, a decision on that. So typically you have a few major milestones in the project. They can be itera- end-of-iterations, they can be releases, uh, they can be something tied to specific documents that should be produced. Uh, Then we have a work plan showing the more detailed activities, the schedule, and the resource allocation, who is going to do what and when. Uh, Then we might have a technical plan showing the methods, tools, techniques, and infrastructure that we need. In many cases, for example, the technical plan, methods, tools, techniques, and infrastructure, might just contain some reference to uh, other existing documentation or to the way we do things in our company. Then we might have support processes, training, quality assurance, reduced testing, configuration management, documentation, Described how that is done in our project. We might have a separate chapter on partnering, uh, subcontracting. A very important part is the communication plus. Who communicates with whom, when and how? What do we inform people, uh, about and when? Communication tends to be one of the biggest problems in software projects. Uh, Finally we have, then we have a control plan, the project management practices, the reporting, what things do we follow up in the project, how do we report status, and how do we change things, what do we measure, that is how do we control the project, so having written the project plan, when we say go, how do we know what happens, and how do we control that. We might have a chapter on risk management, and on project close-up, what happens when the project is done. And then finally, a budget. So that would be the typical content of a project plan. Most projects won't have long text for all of these, but this this is a good uh, list for you to think about when you plan a software project. And I think this is a good place to take uh, a 15-minute break which continue ten past 11. And talk about effort estimation and scheduling. Ah, Excellent, Timothy and Maggie. Software project effort estimation and scheduling. Uh, Effort estimation is the activity that tries to answer answer the simple question, how much work
1: is it in this software project? How would you uh, try to answer this question? So let's say I ask you to develop a
0: web-based system for course management for the university, and uh, then I'll ask you, well, how much will it cost? And then you would probably start thinking about, well, what's involved in doing that?
1: Then you would end up doing some kind of effort estimation, trying to understand how much work is involved. How would you do that? Yeah. The developer. Okay, you would talk to developers. What would they say? Why
0: would you talk to developers? They uh, know. <laughs> what do <laughs> developers know? No, okay, so they, so you would talk to coders about how much time it takes to code to implement something. But before doing that, you would of course need to do some design, understand the requirements, and so on. So you have something to talk with them about. Yes, consulting. Uh, it's called expert estimation. Asking the developers. That's one way we could we typically go about it. Any other ways that come to mind?
1: Yeah. And <laughs>
0: then so we could, we we'll do a, a breakdown structure of of the project and then allocate time to that, yes. What else? Other possibilities for understanding, yeah. So yeah, we, we, we might have built a similar or quite similar system before. We might be able to look at the project plans even and
1: the outcomes of old projects and use, use historical data. Anything else? Okay, there's something called uh, uh, algorithmic cost models. We have in the field of software engineering,
0: mathematical formulas into which we can put some numbers and then we'll get even more numbers out. Uh, We might be able to use these models. Uh, Let's talk more about them later. But first let let's start with looking at some problems in effort estimation. Uh, Of course, the basic problem is trying to predict the future, something that's going to happen, perhaps uh, by looking into the past or perhaps without any good information. A typical problem is we don't have all the information we need to estimate the project in any detail. Uh, the biggest problem is when we do have a, somebody sending us a, a request for, for, for a bid. So they say, we'll have, they more or less say, we need, of course, a management system for
1: the new Aalto University that will cover all universities. How much will it cost? And then they will send uh,
0: requests like this to several vendors, and then based upon that we need to provide a price. And then they might select the vendors based upon the price. So we have very, very little information. Uh, typically at this stage it's more a gamble than software engineering. It's more a business decision uh, 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 how to uh, estimate the project. Large companies have databases but they, uh, uh, and so on, uh, but when we talk about effort estimation here in software engineering, we are not talking about the uh, business side of it, which is how do you price a project. There is some relationship between your know, effort estimation that tries to understand as reliably as possible how much work is involved, and then uh, the activity of pricing the project to the client. Here, when we talk about effort estimation, we talk about how to estimate the real amount of work that is involved.
1: So. We typically have too little information
0: when we need the estimates. And we make big decisions uh, based upon very little good information. Most companies don't have good historical information.
1: uh, And in many cases, estimates are done sloppily. We don't focus enough on doing good estimates. There's been some studies of how good software esti- uh, project estimates are. We talked a bit
0: about this at the individual level when we talked about the BST, uh, previously on the course. As uh, you can see, uh, if we look at the waterfall model, you can see that the estimates vary as much as by, by a factor of four when we do it in the initial definition stages. So how reliable is it? If you say, I want a web-based system for course management, I'll say, okay, it's great, it will be 30,000 hours to develop it. So, how likely, according to research, uh, is that number to, to, to be right? Well, it's not very likely, and it might be off by a
1: factor of four. That would be something we could expect. Uh, as we go further, when we get more information, we become better at estimation. So
0: when we have, if we do a good requirement specification, then based upon that we have a much better situation. Because then we know much more, then we are able to uh, estimate better. Then we might end up with, with an estimate that is off by no more than a factor of two. That's already a very good estimate. So you see in software engineering when we talk about good estimates in project management, it's a bit different than uh, you might first initially think of. You think by 5% that's good. If we're off by
1: plus minus 100%, that's okay. That's not bad at all. When we go into detail with an implementation, the more we know, the better estimates we can get.
0: Uh, One thing, though, when we have... Focused on estimation and you should remember from the PSP that in large organizations with experts who have a practice estimation, we can get quite good estimates at the big project level. For example, one company I work with they say that they come up clearly some, somewhere between plus minus five to eight percent uh, is their estimation actually. and big projects. Big projects were projects that are over 30,000 hours, nine hours.
1: And why? How did they achieve this? What's your guess? We have the... the answer is exactly the same as in TSP.
0: Overestimates and underestimates cancel, cancel each other out, so we end up with several overestimates, several underestimates, and they cancel each other out. So in the big project, the overall estimate is much better than any individual estimates for, let's say, a single feature. So we look at, looked in that company at the estimation at
1: the feature level. Uh, there was a factor of 8. So it was much worse at the feature level, the estimate,
0: estimation, than this chart would say. There had a factor of 8 uh, uh, in, in how, how bad they were. But they cancelled really each other out when we have lots of features and new projects. So we ended up with something uh, uh, that was a very good estimate. So, this is also what, typically what what can happen. But the important point with this uh, slide is that we, when we have very little information, we typically get very, very poor estimates. We need to update our estimates and our project plan as we know more. So again, having the idea of doing a perfect project plan at the outset that we, our only goal is to follow that project plan. That tends to be very difficult because we will have so many information when we do the project plan. In our field there are many, many estimation techniques. First of all, there are the algorithmic models. Uh, the people have developed them, of course, like them. The idea with algorithmic models is that we have some kind of algorithm, the mathematical formulas, into which we put some input numbers that describe our project, and then, poof, we get the number of hours in the project With any amount of decimals you'd like. So, the most known ones are the function point models and Cockroville models. Then, the function point models have been also evolved to include uh, proxies for class, class-based proxies and so on, to use for object-oriented development. Now, what you would put in into these, for example, in the original function point, is how many screens... Are there in the software? What kind of data? How many tables in the database? How many uh, different functions do people use, and so on? So you would put in certain uh, descriptive numbers of the software that, you're, that you are developing, and you also would input the programming language you use, because the programming language was also found to affect uh, the amount of work. And then you would get a nice number that says it's 50,237 hours point. 842. And that's your estimate. Here you are. Uh, the CoComo model is another algorithmic model that is developed based upon empirical data from many organizations. Uh, it also has, there are several versions of the CoComo model. Uh, it's described in your book, and you are not required to know the details of these models, but you are required to understand the basic principle. Again here, you would put in how experienced personnel do you have, how big is the software uh, that you are going to to build uh, and certain other factors.
1: And then it will give you an estimate. This is the amount of hours that you will need to work to build the software. What do you think of these algorithmic models? Do you have any idea? What what is your intuitive feeling? Do you think they are great? But it's easy as that.
0: This is the exact, the exact, the biggest problems with the algorithmic models is the garbage in garbage out problem. More or less, all the parameters that they require you to give will be guesses or estimates from your point of view. So unless you do sensitivity analysis, changing the, the looking at the likely intervals for the values of those parameters, you will get a very precise number out with all, any amount of decimals. But again, you will have the problem that it might be off by several 100 percent So those decimals are absolutely no use to you. It. it will look very exact and nice. And your boss will love the numbers because you can say it's .34 hours, blah, blah, blah. But it's garbage. So you have to be very careful when using these models because what you put in will be garbage. So what comes out will be very, very exactly looking garbage. So you must understand how, that the numbers that come out aren't very reliable because the inputs aren't reliable. And this is something that people often forget because you like having a number that looks very precise. So, algorithmic models typically shouldn't be used by themselves. They can be used as a sanity check for other estimates. And this is actually one basic rule for estimation. Typically, it's a good idea to combine several techniques. Uh, a very good technique that we already mentioned was the expert judgment, and it's actually the process, asking the people who know. And this was also the method used by the company I described, who ended up with good estimates at the whole big project level. In essence, they had experts who estimated various subsets of the requirements. So then the experts would be people who really do understand how something will be implemented, and they can, in their head, start thinking about, reasoning about how much work might be involved. It can be at the developer level, it can be at the architect level, whatever, but it's somebody who has a technical, deep understanding of what might be involved in doing that. This is... Typical is the most used technique and the one that, ends, that, that, that is the best for getting good estimates. In particular, if, if the experts uh, are uh, experienced in doing estimation. Meaning, they have done that many times. They have gotten feedback on how good their estimates are, and so on.
1: So, but if, so, sometimes we also
0: call the expert judgment the HIHA technique, HIHA menetelma, uh, that's very useful in, in, in Finland, that is you just come up with a number. The idea is absolutely not to just come up with a number. That is a, a wrong understanding. The idea here is to uh, come up with your, it's always an estimate or a guess, whatever. This estimate here is the same thing. It's your best guess for how much work is involved, given everything you know and everything you understand. So the more you understand from a technical point of view on what, what's involved, the better your estimate will be. Okay. We have estimation by analogy, which here means we estimate by looking at analogous projects, a similar project that we had done before. Something similar. It might not be the whole project. It might be a similar feature we have implemented previously in another project. So we might have some historical data that we can use. And often expert judgment is combined, used either as top-down or bottom-up estimation. Top-down estimation means that we do a breakdown structure stu- uh, f- of the software, uh, starting by estimation of uh, uh, the, the, the big part and then g- working our way down, or we can do a bottom-up estimation, we do the breakdown, and then we start by estimating the smallest parts, the so- smallest modules of the software. But the, we have a set of techniques, we'll talk about more about them uh, also during the second part of the course and you are required to read about these techniques now for, for the midterm. So, be familiar with them. You would be required to remember any formulas, but you should understand the ideas behind all the techniques. And best practices, the most important thing, it's a good idea to use several practices. If you use algorithmic models, you will typically need to tailor them to your organization. So if you use function points or object points, whatever uh, versions on those, you would need to use that for in some projects in your organization and then tailor them, uh, their coefficients to, to work for you. If you use an algorithmic model that has been tested before and you have your own expert estimates and they are totally off, then something is wrong. They should more or less converge. So that is the idea. You can get at least some kind of sanity check for your estimates by using several methods. Uh, so it's a good idea to, to do that. There are also formal ways of doing expert uh, uh, estimates, so-called delphi techniques and so on, in which you have several experts uh, com- coming up with uh, a consensus estimate. Uh, you can do that. Uh, you can ask for several different estimates. What is the most optimistic, the most realistic, and a pessimistic estimate. Typically, the first thing you do is forget all the optimistic estimates. They have nothing to do with the reality. And then you look at the probable and the pessimistic, and you use the pessimistic one, and then once and then you get quite close. Okay. Uh, if you have documented data, use that. Um, and ca- if you are at a stage in which you can use developers, uh, those t- they tend to give you the best estimates. Again, given that they have practiced doing estimation. One thing that is very important when you, also, when you, do, estima- uh, when you do estimation at all levels, in particular with developers, never uh, accept an estimate that is given in days. Oh, it will take me a day or two days or a week. Why? Why do you think this is a bad idea? I know this is done very widely, so that's why I make it a strong point.
1: How many hours equals a day? Eight hours. So, okay, given, given statistics from most organizations, if you are in a big organization, uh, you might get something of like 50% effective working time. So, one day actually equals four hours of doing coding. So, a day, uh, if you have a small organization, you might get 70-75% effective working time. So, a day is never eight hours. Or if it is, then you will be doing lots of overtime. A day is... A very flexible concept. If you say, this task is eight hours, that is
0: not flexible. It's eight man-hours. Then it's another thing, which are the days during that you will do that. So it's very important to do your effort estimates in an effort unit, that is man-hours. Or man-days, and then you would know that a man-day equals, in our organization, 4.5 hours of actually, actually coding. Because a lot of time in all organizations will be spent on meetings, seek leave, blah, 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 blah. There are lots of overhead. So, the idea of using a day equals seven and a half hours, eight hours for your estimates is guaranteed to raise your schedule and raise your plan. So, it's a good idea just to talk about hours when you talk about effort, How many hours is involved? And then when you talk about schedule... uh, then you can use days. So you have a task that takes, that is estimated at eight hours, and then you can talk about schedule. Well, how many days will it take you to complete the task? That is eight, nine hours. It must take three days because you don't have uh, more time than that to actually perform work on the task. So it's very important not to mix effort and calendar time which is, which is, is with each other. And this is a basic rule. You can use terms like nine days, nine hours, and so on, but people often forget to add the man before. So that, that's, therefore it's a good idea to just talk about hours, when you talk about effort, about something you have done or plan to do, and then schedule when talking about when something will be done. This is the most easiest way of avoiding the confusion between estimates, efforts, and schedule. Because then the next thing we do when we have when we have scheduled, uh, when we have effort, estimated effort, then the next thing Uh, is to schedule, see when will actually these different things be done that we have estimated the size of. And the bigger our project is typically the less people will spend time effectively on working by themselves. So a rough estimate here is that 60 to 70 percent of work time is uh, efficient. Many organizations know the exact numbers, but this this is a good starting point. When you schedule, you also schedule vacations and sick leaves and so on, and you go typically down to uh, an individual level. And getting this realistic good schedule is very difficult. But again, if you use uh, an, uh, a time box model, the schedule is easy. Because time is fixed, you know when your iteration will end. So then you, 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 you deal with scope. But again, then your, your scheduling is based upon looking at What are the things that we can put in an iteration? And then again, to to deal with that, you need to have an estimate of how much work is involved. Because then you also know how much work can be done within a fixed time. That's the idea of time boxing. So you should have a good reasoning, and it's typically a good idea not to have very overly optimistic schedules. Because you will absolutely, very easily, by mixing days and hours, and forgetting uh, the, the efficiency factor here, which typically is 50-70%, it can be even less, uh, then you will end up with totally unrealistic schedules. So, there are many reasons for scheduling, I will go through this very quickly. Uh, of course, we, we, will, we can use the schedule to make sure that we have the people needed when we need them, to avoid having different
1: activities competing for the same people, uh, how many projects should, should one coder be in at a single time? If you have developers, how many projects should they be involved in at any single time? Seven? Twelve? Thirty? Any ideas? What, what would you do? What do you, what do you think? How many pro-
0: pro- ongoing projects should one person be involved in.
1: Yeah. Water. Preferably one. Okay. Any other opinions? Question two. Any other opinions? Somebody vote for three. Very good. You're on the right track. There's not very many
0: studies on this, but there are a few. First of all, let's start with the agile one. The Agile models say that all coders are full-time. They work on single projects and then it makes scheduling, it makes management e- managing easy, and so on. So this is one of them. Uh, the only empirical evidence i have for is just one study that has looked at coder uh, productivity, not coders, so it will be product development, but de- developer productivity. Productivity and the number of projects. Simultaneous projects, and it looks something something like this. Like here we have the normal, let's say 50 percent, 60 percent, 70 percent, and we have one project, two projects, three projects, four projects, five projects, and so on.
1: And the important, the interesting thing was that it looked like this. More or less. This is just look at the percentages, but this is the Uh, the message we got from how productivity
0: for a coder or developer goes. So, one project you are doing very well. Two projects can be even better. Three projects is much worse than one project. And if you go over that, the guy starts doing something that we are
1: very very familiar with in computer science. It's called thrashing. It's context switching all the time, getting nothing done.
0: Context switching for coders is a real problem. You all know that, when you're very focused on that. If somebody comes and disturbs you, you will lose focus, you will need to get back to that. Material. You should jump to another project. It will be a lot of overhead in context switching between different projects. So, the optimum is one or two. Well, what do you think was the reason for that two here gave us better productivity than one project?
1: One simultaneous project. There is a very obvious reason, yes. And you get new ideas from the other project. That's a good idea, but that that wasn't what they found, but that's something. That's just a
0: Any
1: other ideas? Yeah. When you start,
0: when when for some reason, for example, you are waiting, you have some... uh, You you are waiting for somebody else to get something done, you can work on the other project. This was the reason that that this uh, uh, looks like this. When, when you cannot work for some reason, or get stuck on the project, you can work on the others, so you have, which means that both uh, go ahead. So, one or two projects, no more, if you want to keep your people productive. This is something that many, many organizations break, which also is one reason for having lots of problems in projects. Let's say that you plan all projects with a very high efficiency rate of your coders then you add several projects to people, you forget that your productivity drops drastically due to the context switching and overhead of working on several projects. So one or two, no more. That's a good rule of thumb for you. Uh, Agile models say that everybody is full-time. There's no, I've seen no empirical evidence saying that that actually is more efficient than working on two projects. But... Uh, I, I cannot claim that it couldn't be. So,
1: again, as so a rule of one or two is good.
0: More is bad. Okay, you can draw so-called timeline or gun charts. That, those are very simple. You can read about them in the book. We won't spend any time on them here. Um, okay.
1: Very briefly,
0: risk management, then we'll talk a bit more about the control. Risk management means thinking about what can go wrong. This is something we don't like to use. What are the risks involved in the project? Risk management uh, has, is, is a field in software engineering that has been fairly thoroughly studied. And here you can see one breakdown of the elements risk assessments. Finding the risks, identification, analyzing them. Analysis, prioritizing what are the most important risks. And then we have control. When well, we have the list of risks, what do we do about it? If we plan what we, we, risk management planning, we plan how to manage the risk, we do resolution, that is, if a risk happens, uh, uh, then what, how, how do we do that? And risk monitoring, how does the things that can do wrong change dur- during the project? Uh, in practice, uh, re- uh, or risk management, first of all, can be considered a cycle. You first identify, analyze, prioritize the risks, you do planning, resolution, and monitoring. You should... We're doing this all the time during the project. Uh, there are then some mathematical ways you can do this. Uh, the most important one is called risk exposure. Uh, you can you try, which is a one way of helping you prioritize the risk. So you can see here, uh, you can think about time, money, or, or scores,
1: likelihood, uh, and you get a number that helps you prioritize the risk. In practice, again, uh, often risk exposure numbers aren't as useful, as you would change. Because
0: getting good monetary numbers, for example, for many of these, understanding um, the timing of risk can be very difficult. So, in practice, I haven't seen risk exposure numbers being used that much. The typical way uh, that is used are very, uh, uh, for risk management are very, very simple. And why are the very, very simple that is used most because they seem to work? Uh, the very simple ones, typically, the most simple one is at having a top risk list. It could be a top five risks or a top ten risks. Uh, so, it's very simple. You list the risk uh, and have a list uh, with these risks and what you plan to do with them. Again, let's not spend too much time on this. Uh, Take a look, for example, like this. You have this week, the top risk is feature creep, meaning that we get features added to our software that shouldn't be there. So, then we have last week, it was also the top risk, and then how we deal with this is that we have a safe delivery approach meaning that we have an incremental development model uh, that means that we can show the clients how we proceed so that we, we in the hope that this will uh, make sure that we don't get asked for features that aren't really needed and we might even need some training to deal with that. Then so we have the second one here, a new thing. We have a change of, of a configuration management system that can be create problems. Uh, in our system and then it's now being evaluated how we can uh, work with this risk. Then we have a third optimistic schedule and we are working on estimation uh, and prioritizing functionality in a new way and so on. So this would be examples of other risk lists. Risk management tends to be something that is very difficult to do well. Often you end up with lists that look nice but are, you you would then find similar, similar items you have, problems with personnel leaving and so on. But it's a good idea to think through the top uh, risks in your project. There are in our field <coughs> various formal approaches for doing risk management, which becomes more important if you have a critical project. You can use those to be FDIs, some things you need to be There are approaches with long checklists, the whole next different kinds of risks that you might have in your project. You can use them to help you and there are also uh, formal processes for doing risk management. But, in most cases, you end up with
1: as good results just brainstorming the top 10 risks. Let's go on to monitoring and control. This is After we have planned the project, we have started
0: the project, it's very important for us to understand what happens in the project. We typically do that by comparing to the plan, updating the plan, or changing the project as needed. The idea of control is to use the information we get for monitoring, we'll talk more about measuring uh, metrics tomorrow, uh, and use the monitoring information we get from the project and react to slippage either to replan or to keep our coders in the ass or whatever to get them coded coding more quickly. I think I've seen a very good uh um, for uh how to uh, increase development. Because uh, and manage man uh, security manager and you can, can deal with them so it's all manager to do we have a problem with uh product development type.
1: You need to think back and just probably solving the problem of having too long projects. So, very often what we end up doing actually is is, uh, changing
0: some model, or changing the plan dropping features, or or something else. Uh, It's important to define the monitoring and control practices in the beginning. The practices are very simple, it's meetings, it's reports, uh, and so when you might remember when we talk about Scrum, we have the daily Scrum meetings when everybody tells what they have been doing, what they are going to be doing, and if they have problems. This is a, an example of a monitoring practice. So we know every day what has happened in the project. Uh, then in the project organization, the project manager monitors what happens in the different teams, and then he typically reports to the steering group which uh, will make decisions if uh, things uh, need to be changed,
1: for example, changes to the scope, to the budget, or to the schedule.
0: So you, we have several levels of control, if you wish. We have the information going from the project team up to the uh, being aggregated for the use in the steering group. And uh, we have control, major decisions about what can or should be changed, going down from the steering
1: group By the project manager to the project team. Uh, Now, conceptually, this is extremely simple. In the real world, things become complicated. Because we have issues of losing face or looking good and so
0: on, playing very important roles. So, the project manager might often want to hide problems from the steering group, though he's aware of them. Team managers might want to hide problems from the project manager to look good uh, and so on. So uh, getting a good transparency where actually we have reliable, good information about what happens in a project, is easier in principle than in practice. And there are some uh, and that is why defining clearly what should be reported and how is very important. A very typical mistake that we'll talk about later is to 90% complete 90% of the time syndrome. That means that our project very quickly goes up to 90% done, and then it stays there for 90% of the actual time the project takes. This is a problem we run into when we ask people
1: to say, how far along are you? Well, I'm almost done. So, when reporting progress,
0: how far along we are. The best way to do that is to report only finished tasks. Is this done, is it not done? Two answers. That is one good way of doing it. Uh, Another good way of doing it is at the task level, the monitor has three pieces of information. And this is perhaps the best one I know of. You have the original estimate. How much did you think originally that will be will have to be done. How many hours is included in that? The original estimate. Then you have the number of hours done. So, let's say I have an estimate for a task is hours. I have now worked on it for five hours. I spent a whole day to go working on it. I managed to work for five hours. And then, when I report that, I give a third piece of information here. How many hours do I, I think there is left on this task? So, the amount of work left currently. And then I say, okay, I think there's at least six hours left. So I worked five, I think there's six left because I, I, I learnt, now know much more what's involved, but the original estimate was eight. So now I immediately see that it looks like it's going to take at least 11 hours, but the information was great. We have a problem, great slack This is the best way at the task level uh, we have of understanding uh, what happens. Uh, a more typical way would be for still asked my boss to come, I said, hey hey uh I have to give a report to the steering group, now, to the I have to give the a completion percentage. And then I would say, well, I worked for it for the whole day, it was estimated at eight hours, I
1: worked five, it's, oh, I, I, I don't think it's so much, less. it's 90% done. No. Tell them that. I'm optimistic.
0: And this is exactly what leads to the 90%, complete 90% on the time. We don't give good information, we... To the GitHub percentage, they just throw up a percentage that looks And some organizations have actually formalized this w- stupid way of reporting. Uh, some organizations say when well, we have started a task, we automatically say it's 25% complete. 25% complete means somebody is working on it. 75% complete means uh, we have started thinking about testing. And when it works, it's 100%. So it has nothing to do with the actual amount of work it and they have formalized this way of reporting. So you might find very strange things. So using percentages that aren't based upon
1: good data is worthless. But you will find that to be uh, creeping in common. So don't do that. So either you can have a very simple binary, a Boolean. It's
0: done, it's not done. That's it. That's very clear to understand or then you have a, you can have percentages calculated based upon how much has been done, how
1: much is still left. Based of, and, and from that you get the overall estimate. Okay. So then you would in
0: addition to these this task level uh, estimate you would also look at problems encountered, you would ma- monitor the costs, the staffing, you would work with the risk monitors and Still, it's very important to try to avoid information overload. so you always work with tens of pages of information, uh, uh, it's worthless, because you, you don't have time to read and understand it uh, well. So it's a good idea to use visualizations, we'll talk more about that uh, when we talk about uh, metrics. I mentioned uh, the 90% completion syndrome. Don't do that. You need to control on deliverables. Again, when it's done, it's done. When it's not done, it's not done. It's important to define what is meant by completed, If you have completed, not completed. In Scrum, the Agile methodology, you talk about the definition of done. So, it can be done when the developer has tested it, or when integration works, smoke testing is okay, or even... uh, Some organizations even say, well, no
1: bugs have been fixed, but that's typically not a good idea. So you have bug fixing as a separate task instead. And progress visualization, I'm going to show you
0: more later in the course, can be, and it's a good idea to keep it, extremely simple. Use colors, green, done, yellow, in progress, red, not done, or problem. Uh, Make it extremely simple to see. Uh, real. In in some agile methodologies we have something called a burn down graph. Say how much, how many hours are
1: left. And we have the date, Time. So we have amount of work left and time.
0: This is how we should look. If anything goes perfectly. As time moves on, we go down to zero hours. What happens typically in software projects is that we start here, uh, we work, but still it, it
1: might go down, then it might go up, it might go down. So it looks something like this. And this information is very useful for us in, uh, because there we can see it when we
0: running the problem. Here, for example, we might have dropped some functionality. That is how we so quickly got the number of hours left down by dropping functionality. So this is called a burn down graph. There are many ways you can do 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 this visualizations, but the basic idea is to keep it very, very simple. It's important to monitor frequently and immediately give feedback. Typically the cycles should be, let's say at the team developer level, a good idea is to have a daily cycle for for progress measurements. At the project manager level, daily or weekly. And at the steering group level, it's typically monthly. Those would be the typical cycle length lengths you would work with. If you're at the team level, uh, Going back to what we talked about, the agile models, it's a very good idea to keep it daily. So if your team only has a weekly status meeting, that's typically not good enough. It's a good idea to keep cycles shorter. And at the project manager level also daily or weekly, depending on the project size. Because then you will find problems quickly and be able to react to them quickly. And now I see that this is where my time box stops. So, we'll stop here, and tomorrow we'll talk about configuration management and metrics. So, enjoy your lunch, and see you all tomorrow.